RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Mint Mobile. To get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 30 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 370, The Darkness and the Light. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take an in-depth look at the morals, meanings, and messages in each and every episode of Star Trek. This week's episode, The Darkness and the Light, the one where there is a lot of darkness and not as much light by comparison. But before we get into this episode, here's a way that you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod, or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Because this episode is so light and (laughs) so dark, we're Uh going to dispense with the pleasantries that we usually do, John, and we're going to jump into trivia. So here is John Champion with this week's light and dark trivia. That sounds fair to me. So uh, trivia, this week's story is by... Brian Fuller. Well, here's a name that should be very familiar to Star Trek fans. And we have arrived at his very first story sale to the franchise. This is a very unique story, though, about Brian getting his first professional gig as a writer. So he went through the normal channels. He had an agent at the time. So this wasn't one of those totally blind submissions. Now, he did submit a full script for this story, not just a pitch. He actually did the whole thing on spec. And the staff didn't buy the script, but they did like the idea, and they liked Brian's writing in general, so they asked him to pitch again. So he did, and they bought this story. Uh, Of course, his success here leads to a long association with Star Trek. Brian was a fan from way back, and he will show up again on DS9, and most prominently for a long run on Voyager. So... They didn't buy Brian's script as is, and that means that the teleplay duties fell to Ronald D. Moore. Ron was given Brian's story, which was influenced by an Agatha Christie novel and well outside of his own comfort zone as a writer. But in the end, he was very pleased with the build of tension and the methodical reveals. Now, speaking of so many firsts on this episode, we welcome a first-time DS9 director, Michael Vijar, Now, Michael had been around uh, Trek one time earlier. He directed the TNG episode Coming of Age way back in that show's first season. Fast forward nine years, and here he is again, but he will be back a bit more frequently from here on out. So get used to that name. 
He has loads of TV credits starting back in 1979 with Fantasy Island. And Norman, Norman, I picked this one just for you. He also helmed 14 episodes of Magnum P.I. Some of which are my favorites. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I got to jump in here for a second, John, because Mike is, uh, he is a prominent director also in a series that I've mentioned that I've liked somewhat, you know, from time to time. Which, uh, see, hmm. Gosh, trying to think of what else. Uh, so there's Star Trek, there's Magnum P.I. Um, Babylon 5. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. see, I, I wasn't sure about the loyalties there between Magnum or B5. I don't know which <laughs> way to go with you. you know, I, I, I feel bad to leave one out for the other, so you got to keep me on my toes here. Nah, Why not have a- both, I guess is what you're saying. He's a great director, and uh, it's, it's nice to see him and his span of work like across the 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s, I believe. Yeah, 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 for real. Well, in this episode, we have a couple of interesting technical notes. We never see the Hunter probe of any sort, but John Eves did design one that would have caused the hull breach on the station. Uh, it would have been a, a very expensive effect, though, so we only hear about it off stage. Also, the final shot of the show is this beautiful overhead flyby of the Defiant. It's a unique angle from underneath the ship, and it was a total accident. The motion control camera was broken. The tilt wasn't working. So they shot it anyway because, well, you had the constraint of time and budget, and Gary Hutzel just loved the shot so much that he went with it. So sometimes things go wrong, and you still end up with a great result. Let's talk about guest stars here. Well, we have some returning guest stars. Pharrell and Lupaza are played by William Lucking and Diane Salinger, respectively. We first met them in the third season episode, Shakar. We very briefly meet a couple of new Bajorans. There's Vedic Letha, played by Matt Rowe, a man of few words in this episode. But Matt started TV acting in the mid-80s. He even had small roles in Max Headroom and then in the feature films Naked Gun 33 and a Third and My Blue Heaven. We lost Matt to multiple myeloma at the age of 51 in 2003. Then there's Trenton Fala, who is played by Jennifer Savage. Her very first professional credit is on the 1970s coming-of-age series James at 15, which, as discussed here on Mission Log, was retitled James at 16 when that show adopted a more uh, mature storyline. Just a few years later, Jennifer became very well-known as a regular on St. Elsewhere in the role of nurse Lucy Papandreou. Many guest roles and a few features show up for her later, and recurring TV roles such as Commander Helfman on JAG. Finally, the Cardassian Silleran Prin is played by Randy Oglesby. He's one of those constantly working actors who you have definitely seen before, even if the name isn't on the tip of your tongue. You already saw him on Star Trek back in the TNG episode Loud as a Whisper, where he was one of the interpretive chorus for Riva. We even saw him in the DS9 episode Vortex, and he will turn up again in Voyager and Enterprise. Meanwhile, he is all over TV and features everything from the Lone Ranger to Pearl Harbor to Patch Adams. And John, just to bring this full circle back to Magnum P.I., as <laughs> yes. I want to do. <laughs> yes. William Lucking was actually in an episode of Magnum P.I. called Two Birds of a Feather. Was he? And it's, it's a fantastic episode. 
but unfortunately, I couldn't bring this all the way full circle because uh, Mike did not direct this episode, oh, but William Lucking was in it. It's a shame. All right. For full disclosure, Brian Fuller has a few other Star Trek credits, but we'll make those discoveries later. Prologue. In a cave on Bajor, Vedic Latham Mabrin leaves the ceremony with five other men before the Day of Atonement. As they form a kind of prayer circle around a candlelit altar, a bright energy beam pulses from the shrine directly into Latha's chest, killing him and knocking him violently backward. On DS9, a quieter moment. Major Kira is in the infirmary, being admonished by Dr. Bashir for not taking the Makara herb he prescribed. They taste awful, and they counteract the sedative he's given her to help with sleep. Reluctantly, she agrees. Odo walks in with the news about Vedic Latha. He was in Kira's resistance cell during the occupation, and the thing that killed him was a tiny hunter probe hidden in the candle. Latha was a violent man in his past, but since the occupation, he's changed after finding the prophets. Odo still has some concern over the matter, especially because of his ties to the resistance and to Kira. Later, in her quarters, Kira receives an anonymous message on her computer it's simply a picture of Latha Mabrin and a heavily distorted voice saying, That's one. Act One. Odo is rightfully concerned. To him, members of the Shakar resistance cell must be the targets, and Kira has alerted those that she can. Kira still can't sleep. It's the worry about her friends, not to mention the herbs Bashir has got her taking. She tells Chief O'Brien that she should be on Bajor doing something to protect the others, but he reminds her that she is protecting someone, his and Keiko's baby, by staying on DS9. Soon, a call comes through from Major Kira, which she'll take in ops, but the person on the other end of the line is seriously worried about the signal being traced. That would be Fala, a woman Kira knows and insists to her crew can be trusted. They secure the channel, and in private, Fala says she's worried. Whomever killed Latha is probably going to come for her, too. So Kira offers safe harbor for Fala on DS9. Worf and Dax are in a runabout on their way back from Starbase 63 and will stop by to pick up Fala. But when they attempt to beam her up, something goes terribly wrong. Interference in the integration matrix prevents Fala from forming. What they get back doesn't live long, fortunately. Act 2. Odo says it was a Ramat detonator designed to scramble a transporter beam. It's a tiny device that could have been hidden without Fala even knowing. Kira reveals to Sisko what Fala was afraid of. She wasn't part of the resistance, but she was employed cleaning floors in the records office by the Cardassians. Fala was terrified of being caught, but she passed secret information to the resistance anyway. Now it looks like someone who had a vendetta against the resistors of any type is catching up. Later on the station, Kira overhears a familiar, heavily distorted voice saying, That's two. It's coming from a pad that Quark had acquired, somehow stashed aboard a shipment of Saurian brandy. Odo's doing what he can. He tells Kira he needs a list of all the resistance operations she was a part of. The person doing this now is probably hurt or lost someone during a resistance attack and is looking for revenge. As they talk it over, the computers in the security office go haywire, and there's that voice again. That's three. An image pops up that Kira recognizes. Mobara, 
another resistance member. He now lives in the Masilla province at the university. Maybe they can get a message out in time to protect him if nothing has happened yet. As Odo awaits news about Mobara, he suggests that Kira go back to her quarters and get some rest. At the O'Briens, it's a high-security situation. Kira goes into her room after passing by the several armed guards. Once inside, though, she hears a thud and grabs her own phaser for protection. Act 3. In her darkened quarters, Kira is on to someone. She aims at a shadowy figure until she hears him say, Hold it! in a voice she knows very well. It's Pharrell, along with Lupaza, old friends from the Shakar resistance cell. They snuck on board very cleverly, stowing away on a freighter, then beaming in at the last second. They're here to help, in more ways than one. When they identify who killed their friends, it'll be up to them to kill that person, not the authorities. Even though Kira protests that times have changed, they're insistent. Also, they have a gift, a little box of fresh Makara herbs. While Pharrell and Lupaza make themselves at home in the O'Brien's quarters, it's okay, Keiko and Molly are away. Odo is hard at work. The report has come in that Mobara is dead. He had a micro-explosive implanted in him. Again, something that could have been done by a remote probe. The more he is successful, the closer he gets to Kira. Nog is lending a hand to the investigation, well, lending a lobe, he and Dax are analyzing the distorted voice patterns that have been taunting Kira. What they find is curious, indeed. The more they work, they find that it's a cleverly pieced together selection using the same word at first, copied three times. Using that as a reference and Nog's excellent ear for detail, they're able to tell it's not Cardassian, and it's not a male voice, and then it becomes more clear. The voice is Kira herself. Sampled, edited, pieced together like a ransom note. They'll have to come back to their work, though, since an explosion has just rocked the habitat ring in the exact location of the O'Brien's quarters. The explosion caused a hull breach, and atmosphere was blown out into space. Kira rushes down, fighting her way through anyone who tries to stop her, but when she arrives at the door, in her weakened condition, the Major passes out. Act 4. Waking up in the infirmary, Kira is rattled after a placental hemorrhage. She also gets the news that her friends are dead. Miles is okay, though. He wasn't in the room at the time of the hull breach. Kira grieves at the loss of her friends. Odo comes in to explain that a small hunter drone had attached itself to a freighter and then detached itself, sought them out, and detonated itself. Odo does have some leads, 25 to be exact, but he wants to work on it a little bit longer before Kira sees it. It's also to protect her. He knows that she would run off and try to find the perpetrator before he could. And when Odo leaves the room, she does just that, by beaming herself into his office, lifting the files from Odo's computer, and then beaming herself out. Before anyone can do anything about it, the Major is already on a runabout departing the station. She's fast and clever, Kira deleted the names off Odo's computer and masked her ship's ion trail leaving the station. Regardless, Sisko orders that they launch Defiant to try to find her. Several steps ahead, Kira has beamed herself from the runabout to a desolate planet in the DMZ. It's inhabited by a Cardassian, Silurin Prin. He's got a habitat, a workshop it seems, full of equipment doing something. 
As Kira makes her way through, he creeps behind her and raises his weapon. Kira is fast, though, and fires right at him. Only it's a hologram. This allows the real Silurin Prim to raise his weapon from a dark corner and stun Kira. She awakens now, finding herself held to a seat by a force field, and Prin now speaks about her in the third person, as if she's not there, taunting her about death being close. Act 5. Silurin, despite Kira taunting and trying to engage him, continues his monologue until he breaks. He blames it on her. You, you killed them all. In Silurin's story, he was the innocent, the lowly servant working for Gul Pirak, cleaning uniforms when the Bajoran terrorists struck. Kira would have no idea who Silurin was, but everyone else had helped her. Fala helped them get past the security system. Letha built the charge. Firel and Lupaza stood guard. Then Kira, all those years ago, went up to the house where Gul Pirak lived and set the charge. When it exploded, twelve Cardassians were killed and twenty-three crippled, leaving Silurin burned and disfigured. Kira is defiant, though. They were all guilty. They were all murderers after occupying Bajor and killing 15 million of her people. But Silurin says that she was indiscriminate in who she targeted. He, on the other hand, has only killed those who were involved, those who truly are guilty. And because he's compassionate, Silurin says he'll separate the darkness from the light, He'll remove the child Kira is carrying and discard her. It's the only chance the baby has. Silurin can teach it the difference between darkness and light. Silurin powers up a scalpel, ready to separate the child from Kira. But then she begs for some compassion, at least a sedative. He complies, injecting her until she passes out before lowering the force field and then approaching Kira with the scalpel again. As he gets closer, though, a fully awake Kira kicks Silurin square on the chest, knocking him back long enough that she can retrieve her phaser and fire a fatal shot, killing Silurin. <clears throat> Sometime later, Kira's crewmates arrive in the Defiant. Bashir explains that the sedative didn't work because of all the Makara herbs in her system. When they ask what he wanted, Kira can only say that Silurin was wrong that the light can only shine in the darkness, and innocence is often just an excuse for the guilty. The end. John, I'm going to award you a plus one mm. for your recap, and that is because you had to traverse a mountain of Bajoran names. I, <laughs> you you know what? phenomenally well. Thank you. Bajoran is easily like a fourth language for me. It's, it's definitely worse than my French. And my French is not great. <laughs> Reminded me of a scene in Fletch, like, you know, the three most difficult words that I've had to say in a week are Marvin, Thelma, and Provo. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 uh, there are a lot, there's a lot of Bajoran culture going on here, a lot of Bajoran names, a lot of, obviously, the Chicago Resistance Cell members. And um, I needed to find some way to break the, the depth and the tension from your recap because mm -hmm. it's, it really encapsulated how powerful this episode really is. Well, well, th this is the time in the show we get to, oh, we just get to take a breath. We, we just get to unwind a little bit, so lay it on me. Well, I, you know, I want to start on a positive note, and that positive note is let's spot the combadge again. 
with Captain Cisco's uniform. It's everybody's favorite game show on DS9, Spot the Combadge. Yes. And on uniform number one, Act One, <laughs> where do you think the Combadge is or should be? And I'm surprised they actually didn't get it technically correct this mm-hmm. time around. Mm-hmm. But they did. They, they, they did find a way to, uh, I guess, fix the issue in Acts 2 forward, but... It's just one of those things. I know it's a weird nitpick, but come on, right? Yeah, I mean, it, look, at least they got the chest area. It, it, at least it wasn't <laughs> like, sure. you know, on the right <laughs> buttock or something like that. Yeah. It, at least they aimed for the right area. Uh, it, it's the same thing. It's the same issue with uh, not having the right uniform pieces. And I, I, I don't know what wardrobe was doing in the meantime, but you think like, okay, we've gone from one episode to the next. We, we really, come on, can we just get, he is the star of the show. Can we get this guy his proper uniform? Do you like it in the gray area or do you like it in the black area where it's lower than it traditionally is. I see. I, I think it looks better against the black background, but position wise, it needs to be higher. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of like we're, you know, it's, we're splitting hairs yeah. a lot. With, Maybe with honestly, that. just that gray is too, too deep. It's too thick. Maybe that was the problem. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. weird. That's I weird. always thought it was cool in the gray area. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Jim, but I'm just saying oh, that, yeah. you know, from the very beginning of Star Trek, we've always had like this strange inconsistency, like the James R. Kirk headstone in Where No Man Has Gone Before. And every series has it. Yeah. Every series has that, <laughs> you know, Roy Kirk, just saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so I, I, always good for a laugh. Uh, Worf with the perfectly delivered one liner or one word here uh, when he and Dax are in the shuttle and he, he says to her after she is lost uh, in a game he goes uh, two bars of Latin I hope you have it she goes uh, Worf no mm-hmm. <laughs> just perfectly <laughs> delivered perfect perfect and that's a nice that's like they're turning into a couple yes which yeah. is cute but in a good way weird. here in a yeah. good way yeah yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. Not this is cringy way far there's like a far better conversation that they ever had on Riza ever <laughs> yes Yes, um, and, and rule of acquisition uh, 111, uh, treat those in your debt the way you would family. Exploit them. Exploit them. Love it. Uh, I also love that Worf, I mean, come on, Worf, uh, we just, we appreciate that you have to have a sense of humor, but otherwise a line like this, I'm a graduate of Starfleet Academy. I know many things. <laughs> Why he would know that rule, we just have to go, okay, this is your self-aware sense of humor here. It has to yeah. be. This is this is Michael Dorn as Worf doing what Worf does best. He delivers one liners like no one ever does, mm-hmm. like in the history of Star Trek. Yep. Yeah. Um and hey, as long as we're staying on the uh runabout here for a minute, holy crap. Uh the transporter effect. One of the mm-hmm. most gruesome things I've seen on Star Trek since season one of TNG, where we were introduced to Remix Head Debris. And now someone owes us another hundred dollars. Uh, but yeah, that was a uh, that was a gruesome effect. I thought, and we lingered on it more than I thought we would. Yeah, that was like shades of uh, Commander Sonak, and and I know this is going to escape me mm-hmm. when I need to know it most. But in the in the novelization of the motion picture, it was it was Kirk's girlfriend at the time, yeah. Admiral Nagora's yeah. attaché, who was 
with Captain Kirk, and she was supposed to be his liaison to the new Enterprise. She and Sonak both died in that Enterprise. Jeez, did I just spoil something? <laughs> it came out 40 years ago. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, but, but yeah. exactly. That, that's immediately what I thought of. And, um, and you referenced that in your recap. I Very did. well done. Thank you. But yeah, that, that was like I got the idea that we would see something. But the fact that the camera moved down and just sat there for a moment, that was, uh, that was, it was gruesome. It really yeah. was. And, yeah. and there, I know that there's a big point of contention about how, like, today's Star Trek is being a little too in-your-face violent and gory. But when mm. I saw that, I'm like, there is a smoking yes. husk of yes. a body that we just saw degenerate from a transporter accident that they, that they like, zoomed in on. Yeah. Like, they did, it wasn't even implied. Yeah. <laughs> no, it <laughs> no. was there. Exactly. Yeah, they went for it. Well, hey, let, let's move on to more fun things then. Uh, I love, at, well, let, let me put it this way. I love, but I'm also a little bit torn about Pharrell and the Paz's entrance. I, I love it because I love them. Like the pretense, the contrivance around it wasn't all that new. Like it's a dark room. We don't know who's there. So everybody has a gun pulled on each other. Like We've seen that before in shows, but they are so charming and and even the little banter with the Bajoran guard who they had knocked out, like, it, it's a good moment. He's like, yeah, I'll just, uh, I'll be outside. You guys are fine, <laughs> you know. Uh, they really played that scene, which could have been very by rote. They, they gave it some life and some depth. Even that shot uh, where they're hugging Kira and having that quick little moment behind her back, like, go get the thing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they just, I, I like that this is a show where they can take a moment to do a tiny little moment like that makes it very relatable. And it was like a little mini reunion for the mm-hmm. actors, right? Yep. So that's always fun to have. And yeah. I, I like moments like that too, because and I'm going to mention this later on that there's, there's a lot of stereotypical tropishness that's going on with oh, some yeah. of these scenes. Yeah. But if you have the right actors executing the scene well and giving a little bit of their own style and their own interpretation of that scene mm-hmm. that can change uh, something that is very much like a, a three person headshot static headshot type of a scene into something mm-hmm. a little bit more special. Yeah. Good job, Mike. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So with Nog, right? So yeah. Nog audibly decrypting a professionally scrambled digital audio file. So why didn't anyone in ops basically say, get this person a Starfleet post on a, on a listening station because no one can do that. Right. A communication officer. Yeah. Of right. course. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's like a, like I say that kind of like comically, but it's a skill. That's a skill based on his species that has never been used before in the Federation with Nog being the first Frangi ever in the Federation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, wow, you did that like right there live, not Memorex. Yeah, right? <laughs> very true. Yeah. Hey, uh, Norman, I want to start a new game and I'm inviting you to play. I'm inviting all of our listeners to play because we've had mm-hmm. games before on um, Mission Log. Sometimes we have the alternative title game where, you know, we just throw out a new title for a show, retitle that episode a little better. This time it's the uh, Star Trek Wheel of Excuses. And and this time it is based on that one throwaway line: Why Pharrell and Lapaza can stay there with Kira? Well, Keiko is visiting her parents with Molly. 
of course. Okay, oh, of course, of course, yeah. because we can't just have them there and create a more complicated excuse. So what I'm picturing is a big wheel in the DS9 writer's room, and every time they need to write around something, they just spin the wheel for whatever character, and they just pick the excuse. So um, Cassidy Yates, uh, help the McKee jail for six months. Cool. So we, we, we don't have to rehire her for six months. Uh, mm-hmm. Keiko, let's see, Botany Expedition Bajor for six months. She's gone. Visiting parents, at least a month. At le- She's gone at least that long. And then the sort of the wild card, just Alexander who again? Who? We just, oh, we don't even remember. Yeah. Circle yeah. gets a square on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. For sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God. You, you know, do not let up on Warf and Alexander nope. like ever. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Yeah, if that's, I was that's a hundred bucks. Yeah, if I was a judge in charge of custody there, boy, that would just be it would be a bad day. Yeah, that is your center dot on bingo, yeah. Alexander for the win. <laughs> Something that I do like, I love, and there are these there's small moments, and there are moments that they're very serendipitous when the actor and the scene and the setting all kind of work together, and 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 I don't think that it was planned, but. And I wasn't even really paying attention that hard to this scene. It just mm-hmm. really caught my eye. There's a scene where Kira and Oda are talking about the resistance cell. Yeah. And she's crying. She's leaning on her side. She's crying. And then her face is positioned in such a way, and the downlighting is so strong, that you actually see like a rivulet of tears run off of the bio bed. Yes. And I said to myself, I'm like, wow, that that is a moment that is a real true honest genuine moment where everything worked together at the right time for yeah. just a couple of seconds i agree i'm glad that you pointed that out because i thought it was such a powerful shot and they describe in terry's book he describes how that's a scene that's very difficult you have an episode here with two big monologues you have kira's monologue in the infirmary and you have Silleran's monologue in his lair and that's tough to do because there's no action. You just have to rely on the actor. You have to rely on the the shot being perfect. And here they really nailed it because uh, Nana went there emotionally. You really felt it. And that is such a, it's almost like a, a, a shot you would have in a graphic novel. Just something that is so, in a single frame, so evocative. And uh, I really thought they nailed it. Now, okay, I'm going to switch gears here, and I will say that in in an excellent episode, there is one scene that kind of took me out of it whenever I watched it, and it's not because anybody is bad in it. It's just an interesting choice, okay? We know that Kira is emotionally compromised. We know that. We know that she's worried about her friends. We know that the station has been attacked. Still, seeing her run down through that corridor and punch out the guards, like guard after guard after guard, to get to <laughs> Chief O'Brien's quarters, it made me think of Robert Stack in the airplane running in, in the, uh, the the ticket office there, and you just hear like, "Would you like to have this flower a donation for the Reverend Moon?" Pow! You know, help Jerry's kids. <laughs> right. Bam! Just knocking out people all the way uh, there. Uh-huh. Rex Norris, Captain mm-hmm. Rex Norris. <laughs> right, right. Oh, and I want to point out a cool little special effect on that planet where Silurin has his lair. So obviously they built the model to represent the outside of his lair. And this is kind of a mm-hmm. desert planet, you know. And it's clearly a model, but then they do a tiny composite shot of Kira beaming in. 
Yeah. And then later you have another tiny composite shot. I believe it's of him moving around and it's simple, but it's so effective to give that scale. Um, mm -hmm. I just, you know, I, I was like a, a well-executed effect and that was one of them. Yeah, it's this very smart establishing shot just to let you know, like, you know, where she is and kind of like the conditions. And mm -hmm. obviously the first person, the fourth person on this list would be the person, mm -hmm. right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, there are only 21 left on the list. So, yeah. of course, it would be number four. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm being a little facetious. but And it's because this particular scene drove me absolutely nuts, John. Mm. Uh-oh. Okay. I'm going to get into the specifics as to why but when she's hit by the phaser when Prin fires on her mm -hmm. she falls forward onto her pregnant belly she does she does and I was like what why would you do that like yeah. not not her like why would you be there first of all but why writers or stunt coordinators would you do that? Why even entertain the fact that now you're compounding the fact that she's there, putting the O'Brien's baby at risk, and also furthering the possibility of injuring the baby because she fell on the baby? Oh, my gosh. Oh, and by the way, I don't even know like what a neural disruptor would do to her pregnant state because she was hit by a stun setting. Can't be good. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I just, just kind of like, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe Bajoran amniotic uh, protection sacs in their bellies are stronger than humans. I don't know. Can we just say after this, Kira, you stay in the infirmary. Just not even the O'Briens, just stay in the infirmary where somebody can keep an eye on you. That's one. One assassination, haha, -ha, that's two. Two assassinations, haha. -ha. If we keep counting, we will know Silla and Prince number of the day. We'll shine a light on the darkness in a moment, but first, a word from Mint Mobile. Breaking up with your old wireless provider just got a whole lot easier, thanks to Mint Mobile. They were the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, and now, Mint Mobile is introducing their unlimited data plan for just 30 bucks a month. Let that sink in. Wait, 30? What? What? <laughs> Three, zero, 30 bucks nice. a month. How much is your soon-to-be ex-wireless provider charging you? You know, I, I know very few people who are with one of the big carriers who just love their bill every month. And particularly when it comes to unlimited. Because, you know, that was a thing. Like Everybody got unlimited for a moment, and then the carriers took it away, and you had tiered data. And then unlimited came back, but it came, lot, it came back a lot more expensive. So I, I look at this as such a great thing. It, it's for all those people, like people I know who hate their phone bills and just want to get away from the big wireless companies. So now this is like the best of all possible worlds. Premium unlimited for 30 bucks a month. And as we've told you before with Mint Mobile, you know, they can cut those costs because they don't have the expensive retail stores or tons of marketing that they pass on to you. So now you get to enjoy those savings. All of their plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data that is delivered, yes, get this, on the nation's largest 5G network. So you get to use your own phone. You get to keep your same phone number, all your existing uh, contacts, everything else stays the same. 
And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered because they have a seven-day money-back guarantee. It's time for a breakup, Norman. Not, not, not me and you. Don't worry. Don't worry. Just uh, break up with Big Wireless. Switch to Mint Mobile's premium unlimited data plan. Unlimited data for 30 bucks a month. Now, for some of you who maybe you don't use that much data, maybe it makes sense to only spend 15 bucks a month. Just use a few gigs of data. That's great. They got you covered there. But if you are a data hog like me, 30 bucks a month for unlimited data, can't beat that. Now, and it's nice that you don't have to always check every single day that you're going to cap or you're going to pay overages. And even if you did, their app makes it so easy to record and check your data use every day, which is what I do. But if I get the, actually, let me rephrase that. When I get my <laughs> limited data plan, I won't have to use it as much anymore, which is too bad because I actually do like their app quite a bit. Yeah. So to get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 30 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash mission log. That's mintmobile.com slash mission log. Cut your unlimited wireless bill to 30 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, the darkness and the light. As we've kind of been teasing here in the episode, not, not a whole lot of light material to cover. This is a pretty intense, pretty serious story with a lot of heavy themes. And I feel like for me... There's a lot that came to mind, but I, I feel like for me, I'm I'm almost jumping to the end here because there's a couple of major themes that really got me thinking and, and made me think about how those themes recur in Star Trek very well. And it's probably where I will land when we get to morals, meanings, messages, and our, and our final wrap up. So one of those themes for me that shows up very often in Star Trek is who we get to be, who we decide that we are when we can't keep fighting, when we decide to stop fighting. How easily do we let go of the ideologies that led us to fight in the first place? You know, are, are we still who we think we are when there's suddenly no more enemy to define us? Mm-hmm. You know, we see it here. We've seen it in we've seen it in every iteration of Star Trek. We've seen it in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek. I, I'm jumping the timeline something fierce here. But in Star Trek Beyond, I think that was one of the more interesting kind of ideas, one of the more interesting threads about uh, what they were trying to say there. So in this case, I, I think about Star Trek having been written by people who either served in World War II, when you go back to the original series, you know, or, or were affected by it, also the Korean War, and then they were developing stories that came out of the relative peace and prosperity and optimism of turning old enemies into friends. You know, it, it, it was not by accident that you had a Russian on board the Enterprise. Japanese as well. And Japanese, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. But then new threats emerged. The Cold War, the war in Vietnam, these are all the things that the the writers then had to deal with and then the writers of the next generation had to deal with. And I mean the next generation literally and figuratively. We had to keep sort of reassessing how we were supposed to get along in the world and how we could work for peace, which is clearly one of Star Trek's central messages. How do we create a more peaceful future for us? Now, there's so much in DS9 that is clearly inspired by World War II. 
the 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 very feel of it being Rick's Cafe in space. And this period right after occupation and the Cardassians always used as stand-ins for Nazis. That's just very mm. clear. So in a story like this one, we have the one who can't let go, who can't figure out how to live a life past the experience he had in the war. And we, in a weird way, can also sympathize with him. I, I think that's key to uh, understanding and appreciating the story. He wasn't a soldier. He just was in the line of fire and he scarred forever physically and mentally from that experience. I was just in a book completely unrelated to anything Star Trek. I was reading about the Volksdeutsche. Please excuse my German. Those are the Germans who lived all over Europe in the years leading up to and during World War II. But then suddenly found themselves unwelcome anywhere after the Nazis were defeated. And some of them hadn't done anything to support the war effort. Some of them did indirectly, but it came this massively complicated judgment call about what to do and how to treat people who were now without anything. They, they didn't have a place to call home. They didn't have any possessions. They didn't have any jobs. They didn't have anywhere to go. They were purely defined by this experience of who they were. So uh, there's so much of this that gets revisited in the episode here. Kira says, she says straight up to her friends, times have changed. We have to change with it. Bupaza says, when you find out who killed Letha and Fala, you're going to want them dead and you're going to want us to do it. Mm -hmm. it this is such an utterly complex and relatable thing and I'm I'm always interested in the way that not just Star Trek but literature and pop culture deals with this idea of when you have been when you spend a good amount of your time and effort and your identity on defining who you are because of the enemy that you have what do you do when that enemy is no longer the enemy and in this case, we see it from, from both angles, from both ends. And it's a very interesting choice that Kira, when she is captured, is the one who just, she fights back and says, no, no, you're a murderer. You deserved to die. Rather than, please don't kill me. The war is over. I don't want more people to die. You know? So I, I don't think we can totally let Kira off the hook here either. No, and I think that the the scene with uh, her friends from the Shikara resistance, I think that is very telling because the Kira that we know up to this point is the Kira that probably would have tried to find a more peaceful solution mm -hmm. in the end. But it was her past that informed her present yeah. in the form of these two. And they kind of got her wheels spinning a little bit. I, I like how you and I are agreeing with Prin being a sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. Because when I saw his character, I saw shades of another great Deep Space Nine episode called Duet. We yes. all know Duet. Absolutely. Right? And I felt that Prin and Maritza were very much in the same boat. Because Maritza was just a clerk. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a clerk for a, um, you know, a bloodthirsty gull, and he had to keep records on this, all of the gull's atrocities. And 
He took on his gull's identity because mm-hmm. he wanted to be caught. He wanted to be punished. He wanted to atone for sins that he didn't commit. Mm-hmm. But by the sheer fact that he's Cardassian, he felt that, you know what? What my people did to your people was so horrendous, so terrible, that whatever you do to me, in some way I can feel that I will atone for those sins and I can die with, uh, with my conscience at peace. And I think that that's where, not print isn't there, but he makes a very good case of, look, I only killed the people that I had, you know, that I had a vengeance against, that I had revenge for. I didn't indiscriminately bomb an entire station or kill innocent civilians. Everyone that I killed, I made sure that they were away from anybody else that would have you know, suffered any fallout, but you didn't. Yeah. You know, you killed innocent people. And that's all I want you to admit. You killed innocent people, people that washed dishes, that washed floors, that were there against their will, that were indentured servants, that were children. Yeah. Right? So that's what's so interesting to me is that there's this impasse where obviously we are to side with the Bajorans here. They were the ones who were oppressed. The Cardassians are the oppressors. There's a very clear sort of black and white understanding of good guy, bad guy there. But the problem that they've both run into is the this space that I'm I'm very curious about, which is when and how we allow ourselves to forgive, or maybe that's not even the right word. Even if we don't necessarily forgive, how do we move on and try to carve out a new life? How do we try to carve out a new identity for ourselves that isn't hinged on what happened in the past because of someone else, because of that definition of an enemy. Now, I'm not saying that, that that those things aren't important. I mean, clearly the the atrocities carried out were horrible. Clearly, a terrorist attack that takes out innocence is terrible. And I'm glad that you brought up Duet because if you go back and listen to the Mission Log show about Duet, I, I get very heavy World War II overtones, very much about people who worked for and with uh, the Germans during those, or I should say the Nazis, during those atrocities. And, and what happened, you know, some were tried and executed versus some who were not. And and what we're trying to do here as humans with with compassion and empathy is say, okay, guilt and complicity comes in varying degrees. And we have to allow for, well, like in this case, as we're trying to make the case through Kira here, we have to allow for a judicial process to make that call or else we're simply faced with th- this endless cycle of revenge. And that's where they both find themselves, just perpetuating the cycle of revenge, one after another after another. Now, Prin is the one who is the worst off here for it, you know. But clearly, Farrell and Lupas are ready to jump into the fray. And it takes maybe very little convincing to tell Kira... Yeah, you're, you're going to be right back in this with us too. Because it'll be that much more satisfying for you to take that person out. But see, that's where I have a problem with this episode, John, because mm-hmm. for, for five seasons or, or just a little over four total seasons and we're mm-hmm. you know, a quarter of the way into season five, Kira has evolved 
you know, incredibly well. They, she's been well curated as a character. She started off like this character. Yeah. You know, which is another point that I'm going to make after this. <laughs> no, but she started off at a, as a certain character, and then she grew from experiences and learned certain things and evolved in a certain way and became a more rounded character is where, you know, she now has a better balance of her past, her spirituality, her position on the station, what she's responsible for, who's she's responsible for. And then all of a sudden this happens and she reverts all the way back to say season one Kira or season 1.5 Kira, where mm-hmm. it's just, you know what? I'm a resistance fighter and now I have to fight the Cardassians because the Cardassians are coming after us again. I'm like what happened to everything you've learned along the way? Yeah. Yeah. You know, especially forgiveness. Yeah. But, but, but see what you're describing, I think is the absolutely fascinating and relatable piece of this, which is she, that monologue when she's in the infirmary, tells you everything it's about these formative moments in this a child yeah. a, a child who is brought up in the horror of the suppression and understanding rightfully so i have to do something about this you know her, her loyalty to uh her fellow bajorans her loyalty to justice you know i have to do something about this um and that defined who she is into adulthood And things have changed. And she says correctly, times have changed. We have to change with it. But it's so understandable that even if things have changed, there is still something at the core of her identity that is about this conflict. And particularly when it hits home with her friends dying around her. You know, we we might on the surface be able to say, yeah, she can get along with Cardassian sometimes. She can look at Garrick, and yeah, there there's a, a bit of an arm's length distance there, but but she's even had heart to hearts with Gul Dukat at this point. Right. So there is growth. But then I think the warning in this episode is look how easy it is to then not learn from that growth. Look how easy it is to be able to say the thing that that overtakes my identity is my understanding of that enemy who's out there, and I won't be satisfied until I take down that enemy. I would agree, and I would be on board with what you're saying if it wasn't for one specific thing that's, I think that's something that we haven't talked about yet, is that Kira is pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Kira is yeah. pregnant with somebody else. I mean, she's not, she wasn't impregnated impregnated by miles mm-hmm. but she's carrying the, the o'brien's baby keiko's baby yeah she's responsible for that life yeah she's responsible for what happens to that baby okay they made a um, uh you know they they've made it this whole point up until uh throughout season five so far to protect her mm-hmm. from harm to shield her from harm to keep her away from missions because she's not supposed to expose herself which would in fact risk the life of the baby yeah and now because this happens, she just completely throws that out the window. She forgets that she's pregnant with somebody else's baby and hunts down a dangerous person who's killed talented yeah. assassins. What did she? Th- I mean, I'm not saying that Kira can't do it, but you know, I and, and, she and we know the re- do it, <laughs> and we know the resolution of the episode. But let's look at it in a real time situation here. She goes yeah. down. She beams down to that planet. She faces off with Prim. He phasers her, which I have no idea what that would happen to a pregnancy Ooh, if you get hit yeah. by that much neural discharge. Yeah. 
And then all of a sudden, she, she falls to the floor, and her stomach hits the ground, a full fall from at least four and a half feet. Yeah. Now, I don't, like I said, I don't know. You could, you could argue till the cows come home about Bajoran physiology and, and how their womb is stronger than humans. I don't care. Mm-hmm. The point is, is that she shouldn't have been there in the first place. She should have put that baby's safety first. It's not her baby. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think that what she did and chose to do was selfish. I'm going to say it, folks, and send me all the It was selfish. <laughs> it was. Yeah. yeah no, it, it, here's the thing. It, it is selfish. I, I think that is one of the strengths of the episode, though, because it, it shows how easily she flips back into this mode, how easy it is to go like, oh, I've come so far. I'm a different person. I understand that the times are changing. Look at her relationship with Cisco at all by now compared to where she was five years ago we're pulling for her we are pulling for kira even even her confrontations with kai win last week we're like oh you know what kira is kira's on the level now oh but this this is something that couldn't be anticipated this is something that hits so close to home that it's going to make her act out in a way that she shouldn't and i agree with you that she shouldn't yeah, and, and they set up, I mean, there are some very specific lines in this episode, you know, where even Miles says, you know, you're doing something important. You're protecting an innocent life. Yeah, they had to have that line in there. They have yeah. to have that line in there. Yeah. And could you imagine the conversation where she came back and, and something tragic happened to this child, a child that she's weeks away from delivering, as she told her friend? Why would you do that? I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around that choice because if she was like the Kira of she, if it was Kira and just her, fine, go at it, do your Shakar resistance thing, get your revenge, you know, whatever it's worth to you, you know, that's fine. You're only risking yourself, but now you're risking the life of an innocent child who is not even born. Yeah. And what do you think you're going to do? You think you're going to like go into like a fist fight with somebody? What if you get punched in the stomach? What does that do? Yeah. The way that she has been crafted up to this point that she's smarter than that, right? She's smarter than that. And I'm surprised the writers actually took it that far where she would actually put herself in violence, like in the, in the path of violence. It just drove me crazy. <laughs> Sorry. But well, you don't think her, that her drive for revenge is that strong? Her drive for revenge versus the life of somebody else's child? Yeah, versus that, that protective instinct. You know, it shouldn't be anymore. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's like if she mm-hmm. was like running down and chasing this guy all around his his hovel or whatever. And she's like, wow, I'm really out of breath. I wonder why. Oh, that's because oh, I'm wait. freaking nine <laughs> months pregnant. Yeah. Like why? I, I don't understand that. Like, it's not that the signs aren't there. It's not that she doesn't. She's not, you know, weighed down with the physicality of it. The reminders are always there. Yeah. Right. She's not the Kira of the Shikar resistance of 10 years, 12 years ago. Yeah. So all of a sudden she should look down and like, oh, yeah, I forgot. There's an innocent baby in my stomach right now. Maybe I shouldn't go down and, and, and confront an assassin face to face. That might not be a good idea. You don't think that ever crossed her mind? Well, see, and, and here's what's interesting, because the more that you say that, I think, OK, was there an option here from a storytelling point of view to, no. you know, let her understand, let her realize that she is better than simply 
a mission of revenge. She isn't that person who's in the Shakar resistance anymore. She does truly have to let the past go because truly times have changed and she has to change with it. Like those are all the lessons that need to be there for her and need to be absolutely ingrained in her. So then you've got Odo working on the list. He, Worf, whomever, go out to try to find this person and bring them to justice the correct way as opposed to uh, uh, her self-inflicted mission here. But then maybe that goes wrong. And, and maybe her being in danger is accidental as opposed to purposeful on her part. Right. Now, I think that if you really wanted to make a stronger case for what she did, maybe it was Shakar that got murdered, the last person that got murdered, like mm. her, their cell leader mm-hmm. and her, her lover. Mm-hmm. Because I'm I'm still... Yeah. I, I think I'm right, right? They're still in a relationship at this time? Ish. Ish? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, he's still there. Yeah. But there's nothing, there's nothing in the episode so far that, con- that has convinced me that whatever switch that got flipped in her is, supersedes the responsibility that she knows that she has carrying someone else's child. Mm-hmm. Because what do you think would be worse? Her getting harmed and coming away with it but then having to go back to Deep Space Nine and telling the O'Briens that I murdered, I, I murdered, but I had your baby died because of my decision. Yeah. Like, you don't think that crossed your mind at all when she was like flying that runabout trying to find people? And remember, this is the fourth person on a 25 person list. How many opportunities was she going to put herself in danger of being hurt? Right. Right? Right. And I'm just like, why? <laughs> You know, I mean, aside from the fact that I know why, because the writers thought it would be cool to show like a pregnant Kira kick butt and take names and, hey, by the way, I'm pregnant and I can do that. I get that. But in the reality of it, and we have to kind of take a look at this with a little bit of the salt of reality, she's responsible for another life, like directly, not like in tow or, you know, on the station, directly on her physically. Yeah front and center the largest target of her body literally yeah yeah so that's something i i can't give a pass to at all not could have a great future as the federation's leading expert on figuring out who has used what samples in rap music One of the things I love about wrapping up our episodes, John, is that when we have a light episode like this, it's really easy to kind of get around the subject matter. Yeah. But I'm just kidding. Except for to today. Because it's so <laughs> heavy. This, this episode is so heavy. But it also raises a lot of points, and we're going to get to those right now when we discuss our morals, meanings, and messages and how this episode holds up overall. So, John, what did you think? How did this episode hold up for you? Did it withstand the test of time, as we say here on Mission Log? And then we'll get into the morals and meanings. And what is the message? Yeah, I I mean, there's so much that I like here. First of all, just many stylistic references that popped in my head, whether they were intentional or not. You know, I I had read that uh, Brian Fuller was inspired by Agatha Christie. I get that, certainly. I also saw, you know, Phantom of the Opera here uh, with the reveal of the uh, disfigured uh, Perrin 
and Silence of the Lambs, especially when Siloran is, is dehumanizing Kira as he talks to her mm-hmm. in the third person. A, a bit of James Bond cropped into my head, you know? Um, no, Kira Sturis, I expect you to die. <laughs> I, I was thinking a bit of like Scaramanga, um, oh, you know, okay, especially okay. when she's down there and uh, fires at him, but it's just the hologram. He's actually in another right. place. Uh, that right, jumped right, into right, my yeah. head, you know? But, you know, overall, I think those things actually really work. You know, there are a lot of familiar elements. I'm sure that anybody who watches this will find things that they find familiar in the story. But the strength of it here is that they made an episode. They crafted a story that felt like it belonged right where it did. So served up a lot of drama. It, it really worked. Uh, the, the effects and set pieces were really good. And what they did here that paid off for me was that they... It created a story that stands on its own while also paying off some of those deeper threads like Kira's time in the resistance and her colleagues there. In fact, I would say if there are one thing for me to criticize as far as the story goes, the structure of it goes, it's something that they could have made a little more out of that Cardassian tie, make that run a little deeper too. But honestly, that's just me nitpicking. I don't think that is a make or break thing at all. To me, this episode works really well. Oh, and one thing that I read that I thought was really interesting was the decision to let Pharrell and Lupiza die. I, it was interesting to see Ron Moore talk about that decision and how they felt like, well, we need for each of these deaths to keep adding up. What One has to be bigger than the last one. And honestly, they were talking about getting Shakar, but for whatever reason, they couldn't afford another guest star or whatever, so they didn't go that direction. But they wanted each one to have more and more emotional resonance for Akira. Mm-hmm. So then the, the writers thought like, wow, we really like these characters. We really like these actors. But this is the time to do this. Because we have to give it more emotional resonance each time. So I thought those elements worked really well. I I just think it's a really strong episode. Uh, So it does definitely hold up for me. How about you? Well, I think it's a well-produced and well-acted episode. I I liked a lot of what was going on production-wise think that maybe sometimes the lighting was a little too hard on the down lighting mm. so oh, especially yeah. at the final scene with with nana and and or i should say kira and uh yeah. and prin because when you when you have that much heavy down lighting you're seeing a lot of the issues with makeup and things yeah. of that nature sure, sure right um but that's of course that was shot you know that's done in 480 and now you know we have all of these really really good resolution type tvs and stuff like that that can see every flaw in 480 now right mm-hmm. so or 720 not in HD yet. Not yet, <laughs> did, right? Yeah. Speaking of Nana, I'm really, really, really thankful in this episode that she was given kind of like um, a return to form for Kira because it's been a long time where we've seen Kira take center stage in season five. Now, ob- for obvious reasons. You know, we know why that she's been kind of put, you know, on the sideline a little bit because of her pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Now, that being the case, we saw that it didn't stop her now in this episode being pregnant. So I don't see why it would have stopped her before yeah. in other episodes. But that's where this episode kind of stops being entirely uh, successful for me. Mm. Because if it weren't for all of the incredible actors 
that turned out some incredible performances in this episode. I felt that it was a very serviceable revenge plot with a couple of unique twists, but it was just a revenge plot. And I don't think that it serviced Kira's character that well overall. Mm. Well, let, let's fold this into Morals Meanings Messages, though, because I, I, I wonder, I, in fact, I suspect that we probably land in different places here. You know, I, I'll sort of revisit a theme that I brought up in the last segment, which is the, the thing that's interesting to me here is that we all have to decide that there are things that we will forgive or or at least decide how much time or repentance is enough to allow before forgiveness can happen. So I, I mentioned in the last segment, you know, very clear parallels for World War II stories. And what we see here is in no way limited to that. It's just that what well, we're talking about a, a major world history event that is also heavily dramatized in the pop culture since then. So... The, the, those are themes that show up in war movies, but also show up in places like this. Um, in reality, though, there are perpetually moments when we have to decide that we're going to carve out new roles for ourselves because the alternative is to be stuck in a place that we don't want to be, that we can't be if we expect to progress. Kira had to stop being a resistance fighter and learn to be an officer. And she's had to work alongside people who occupied her world and who she tried to kill. But she tells Sillerin that he was guilty and that she has decided that they were all guilty. Everybody was guilty. Lupaz and Pharrell are trying to be farmers these days, but then they're perfectly okay with saying, no, you know, it would feel really good to kill this person. You want that. You want to kill that person rather than let the authorities do it. Sillern Prynne has no identity outside of the traumatic moment that scarred him. And what's interesting to me is that we're doing that now because we do that when we say we, humanity, we do that all the time. We, we look at our history and we try to decide what is acceptable and what's unacceptable. What was a transgression? What is forgivable? who has repented enough. And I wonder when we'll get to a point where we have to say that we can't be those people anymore. We can't walk around with uh, the, the definition of our enemies defining us anymore. So we can't always be stuck in the same dynamics that we always say. As DS9 might say it, why do you live here? <laughs> we could ask that of ourselves. I want to see Kira here a little like Kirk. She knows she's a barbarian. She knows she's affected by things like her sense of justice, of revenge, but she's also trying really hard to be better. But has she been pushed too far where she can't be better? That's an interesting question here that this episode is dealing with. I, and, I will double down on that. On your yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, it, it's a great story to tell about characters, but globally and historically, it's a very interesting story to tell about humans and how tribally humans decide, well, for this moment, we're banded together against this other thing or this other tribe or this other belief. 
But then when that burns itself out, how easy it is for us really, and I would say a lot of times not, to actually accept the humanity of that other person that we painted solely as an enemy, solely because of the position that they held, what they did. So I, I think what's interesting in this episode is that there is a bit of moral ambiguity here, and they didn't let Kira just walk away totally having the high ground because that is very powerful what she says to Prin is that you're all guilty on my account. I wonder if we'll come back to that. I wonder if she will go back to being the person who says times have changed. I have to change because I want to see her truly embrace that. In the way that you described it, it actually brought up one of the probably most important scenes, I think, in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And it's when Kirk is unpacking his duffel bag in his quarters right before Valeris comes in. And, and he says, you know, Gorkhan said that, you know, we have an opportunity to make history with these peace talks. But mm -hmm. then Kirk says, how can history get past people like me? Yeah. Because they've been, he's been fighting the Klingons for most of his career. It so defines who he is. It defines who he is and what yeah. he says and, and how people overheard what he says to use against him later on. You know, it's like, I've never trusted Klingons and I've never will. <laughs> yeah. But it's true that he's reflexive about that, right? He's, he said to Spock, they're animals. And I think that's where Kira is here. And I understand her motivation. I understand what you're saying. And I agree mm -hmm. with you up to a point. Revenge, mm -hmm. however, is a dish that is best served never. Mm -hmm. Never. Revenge mm -hmm. does nothing. All revenge does is it just chips away at that last piece of your soul that you think is intact, but you're going to lose far more in an act of vengeance than you are in an act of healing or forgiveness. Because that's where Kira was. Kira was in a place where before Cisco came in, that was her. She was vengeful. She wanted to keep continuing the fight against the Cardassians and make them pay for what they did to her people. But that was her in seasons one and two. And she's grown from that and she's learned from that. And she's become more than just this renegade freedom fighter turned throwaway possible first officer for the Bajoran militia because they needed someone in there to clean up the mess on Terak Nor. Now she became major Kira Norris, first officer of a Federation space station. She has responsibilities. She has duties. She has people that look up to her younger people children, younger girls that were at one time could have been major Kira. And now they have somebody to aspire to. And that's who she is. But in one fell swoop, she became seasons one and two Kira again. Yeah. But the difference is, is that now she was also responsible for the most innocent of lives, an unborn child. And this is where I take great exception with this episode. I mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. She has obliged herself to take care for and to make sure that this child is given every chance to enter the world for her and the O'Briens. It's the O'Brien's child. So in choosing to do what she did to put herself in harm's way, I felt that from a writing standpoint, it was a grave error in her character development because all Kira did was undo everything that she has built up into this moment. And that's why this particular choice of hers disappoints me. 
So let me ask you this, John, who has the moral high ground, the murderers or the murderer of the murderers? Because I think that you and I understand where Prent is coming from. And he does have a point. He only killed those who killed indiscriminately. He didn't kill the O'Briens or Miles. He didn't kill anyone else on the station as he could have. And he wasn't prepared to sacrifice Kira's baby. Every single person that he murdered was somebody who murdered others indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. So who is in the right here when it comes to actually seeking revenge? Not to say that there's a right here, but he does have a point saying, like, I didn't kill innocent people. So that's where I'm like, okay, he's got a point. To me, it's the person who stops. The, the, the person who stops is the one who has the moral high ground. Kira is not in the right for wanting to go out on a mission of revenge and kill this person when there is a perfectly serviceable uh, uh, system of justice around her in, embodied by Odo <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or, or anybody else, you know, the Bajoran authorities, whomever. And Prin is not in the right here. The war is over and he can feel wronged but they both have to learn a lesson in, again, maybe forgiveness isn't the right word here. Uh, I know that's one that I keep using a lot, but maybe it's acceptance that the past happened. We will never be the people that we want to be if we can't move forward from that. It can inform who we are. It can be part of our histories, part of our stories, but we actually have to move forward or else we all suffer in the process. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com where you will find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam! Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, The Begotten. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. It's disturbing to think how just a simple piece of technology is what stands between successfully transporting a person, and ending up with a chart pile of remains. It reminds us to be nice to our computers, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That's what I thought. And transmission. Podcast. Roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.